Thanks, Gary. Well, it's very nice to be with you this morning. Thank you so much for having me back. I think I've been here a couple of times in the past and uh, always enjoy being here at Solano Valley. Um, did you guys watch Gary's face when his daughter was giving the announcements? It's like pure pride just oozing out of him uh, as, he was, uh, as he was watching her. So, well, good. I'm not, uh, as I said, uh, my name is Paul Tomey. I'm on the staff at Sun River Church in Rancho Cordova. And uh, uh, I love teaching the scriptures. Uh, so I hope that uh, this will be valuable for you today as we begin to talk about something that's very, very important. In 2002, a young University of Washington student named Adam Bertel attempted to sell his soul on eBay. He got about $400 for it, right? Yeah, yeah. But four years later, another man named Lance Morgan uh, also tried to sell his soul on eBay, but he could never generate any bid above $1, which is actually $9 less than the $10 reserve price that eBay puts on anything, right? And when interviewed about this, he later said, you know, he says, I, I don't know what the story is. He says, I thought the devil would at least come up with the $10 reserve price, but... Uh, he said it didn't happen. So apparently the value of a soul is just not what it used to be. You know, when we think about that whole thing, the value of a soul, what is a soul worth? What is the soul? How do we look at the soul? And you know, when you think about it, for instance, uh, the soul is usually the last thing that we think about in the world, the last thing that's on our radar. For instance, we spend an inordinate amount of time, energy, money on keeping up our physical appearance. Most of us know what we do to, to, what it takes for us to just kind of be, you know, presentable in the world. And we spend all kinds of energy and effort making sure that we look good from clothing to fashion to how we treat our bodies. I mean, we massage them, we moisturize them, we nip them, we tuck them, we Botox them, Rogaine them, exercise them. We do, we, you know, feed them with all kinds of really good food. We spend a lot of time on our bodies. And there are lots of other things, our homes, our children, important things, not suggesting that they are unimportant, but the last thing on our radar usually is what's going on inside of us, the soul. And it just seems like, you know what, it is not the thing that gets a hold of us, the soul. It's a very, very important thing, but we just don't think about it very much until the lab report comes back positive until we find out that that newborn baby has Down syndrome or a defective heart or our boyfriend leaves us or a spouse serves us with divorce papers or we get the pink slip from work and then all of a sudden the soul becomes something very, very valuable to us. It just seems like the soul is not something that most people spend a lot of time thinking about but when those moments come it becomes very, very important. Ray Romano, who uh, was in for nine seasons in that television sitcom, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, told the story at the very end when the cast was kind of doing their last uh, episode. He kind of stood there with the audience and he told this story. He says, when I left for Los Angeles to begin making this particular uh, uh, television episode, he said, my brother put a note in my pocket. He said, here's what it read. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And with tears in his eyes, Romano simply said, now I'm going to go work on my soul. Now I'm going to go work on my soul. Our souls, what are they worth? What are they, what's the value of them? What do we do with them? 
And there's a verse that's spoken very consistently, very compellingly, and very powerfully to me over the last probably 20 years of my life that I want to share with you this morning. It comes out of the book of Proverbs, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, starting in verse 23. As you know, the book of Proverbs is the book um, of how life works. It's a book of tremendous practical wisdom. And uh, when you look at the book of Proverbs, it teaches very pithy kinds of truths that help us kind of sort through and navigate the, the very practical things in life. And in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, there's this verse that has caught my attention. It says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Let me read that one more time. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, at first, the verse looks fairly unremarkable. You know, look at it, okay, it's a verse like lots of other verses I've read. It's, it's kind of mildly inspiring, whatever. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this verse packs a universe of meaning that most of the time we don't get a hold of. And what I want to do this morning is unpack this a little bit for us. What would this verse mean to us if we were to take it at its face value and at its truth? And so let me see, try to unpack some of the key terms that are part of this verse. And first of all, I want to draw your attention to the word heart. All right, heart. The heart was considered the core or the center of the human being, the human life, all right? The nut, the kernel, the control center of life. And like the heart is this central organ in the human body, the Hebrews invested the different organs, anatomical parts, with spiritual significance. So when they would look at an anatomical part, it would actually have some spiritual kind of significance to them. So the heart was the seat of reflection, the seat of conscious and uh, cognitive thinking. Uh, the ability to sort out life from the, the, the intelligence and the emotions and the will level of being. And they invested it with that kind of significance. And what I want to suggest to you is that this term heart actually literally describes the soul. The soul is the control center of life. This, this way that in which uh, as the heart pumps blood to all the other aspects of the body, so the soul directs and shapes everything that happens in a person's world or in their life. The second word that I want you to begin to look at is this word flow. Or sometimes some of the versions talk about it being the wellspring of life. A wellspring was a spring that, that uh, in an arid country like Palestine, uh, continued to run year-round. All right? It never dried up. It always was putting out fresh water. And this wellspring is the idea of this spring of, of the outflow of this life as the heart pumps blood throughout the system. So the soul is this spring of water. That, that continually offers life and continually offers refreshment to a person's life uh, indeed. And look at the larger context, how it supports this. Look at verse 20, starting again in the same chapter, Proverbs 4, 20 through 27. And as, you're re- as I'm reading through this or you're looking at it, I want you to note all the different body parts that are mentioned. All right, my son, uh, the writer says, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and healing to all of their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, here's our verse, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away you, that is your mouth, crooked speech, or put away from you, uh, that is from your mouth, crooked speech, and put devious talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Look at how anatomically oriented this whole section is. 
He talks about ears and eyes and heart and flesh and mouth and lips and eyes and feet. They are all in here. And in fact, if you look at it, there are seven different uh, terms that are used for the body here. In the Hebrew way of looking at life, the number seven has significance. It talks about the completeness. And what he's trying to share here is the entirety of our lives. The entirety of our lives are served by this thing called the soul. Our inner life is the catalyst for everything else about us. Your marriage, your kids, your family, your job, your activities, your leisure time, everything in our worlds is shaped and directed by the inner part of our lives. It catalyzes everything about us. And the operative term here in this passage that I want to focus on most, most of this morning is this word, to keep. Keep your heart. And literally what I want to suggest to you is that this word means not just the idea, because you could look at it like, what's it mean? Keep my heart. Keep my soul. What, what does that mean? Well, think about what it would mean as we think about it being something that you guard or protect. Literally the word uh, comes from the Hebrew term shamar, and it's the idea of of guarding or protecting or watching over something with great vigilance. I'm a grandfather. Oftentimes we are allowed to keep our grandchildren. Actually, we're begged to keep our grandchildren overnight most of the time, right? And um, and we are so vigilant with them, man. We're watching everything. You know, where the parents might be a little looser, we're like, no, 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 not on my watch, right? And that's what this word kind of means to keep, to watch over something with great vigilance, with great attention. And so literally, what I want to suggest is that this word would mean, in our context here, to give attention to your soul. To give great attention to your soul. Vigilant attention to your soul. And the sharper translation would look like this. Give attention to your soul because out of it flow all the issues of life. Everything about you. So let me surface a couple of insights real quick, and then we'll try to get into some very practical things. First of all, you cannot read this verse without beginning to see how pivotal the soul is. The activity of keeping our souls is absolutely pivotal for us. It is so important. Let me see if I can't illustrate this for you, and all of you I know have been watching this like, okay, what's he going to do here? So let me describe to you the function of what the soul does. And you could think about the soul like you would an operating system of a computer, or you could think of it like the hub of a bicycle wheel, all right? In the same way that an operating system uh, uh, allows you to run software, you know, within your computer system, so the soul uh, runs the software or allows the software of your life to run, so to speak, if you want to look at it that way. It is this interior place where God dwells. And in a human being's life, what God has designed in a human being's life is for everything to flow out of this center. So all the aspects of the outer life, okay, your work, your school, um, your friendships, your leisure time, everything about you runs out of this center. And uh, I don't know how many of you are bikers here. I like going biking. And so uh, we talk about the fact that when a a bicycle has been, um, everything's been harmonized to this hub, everything flows in a very kind of smooth center. Right, And the wheel turns effortlessly and it kind of flows through and everything finds its harmony and its integration and its coordination out of the hub. And as you can see, and I'll try to turn it here so you can see, it's, it's, it's not super true, but it's as true as I could get it for this illustration. All right, If everything is really tightly put in there and fine-tuned, this thing flows really, really well. And God designed human beings to run like this. 
to flow effortlessly out of this center where everything is organized and coordinated and, and everything finds its power and its energy from this center, all right? But if you were to take a wheel and you were to disconnect parts of it, and you can see where we disconnect parts of the spokes here from the center uh, or they get warped a little bit, watch how this wheel turns, all right? So you can kind of see. It's a little wobbly. And the more that you disconnect this wheel, sorry, over here, the more you disconnect this wheel from the hub, the outer dimensions of the wheel from the hub, the less harmonized this wheel becomes, the less true the wheel becomes. And eventually, if you ride your bike on this kind of a wheel, like one of the spokes, it will continue to distort more. It will continue to warp. It'll continue to crater. This is not going to run very well. You can ride this bike, but it will take a lot more effort. It will not be nearly as efficient. You will be tired quicker. To ride this kind of bike, it's hard. So here's the upshot of this. When people disconnect their life from God, the soul, it's the reason life doesn't work well. It's the reason that life doesn't seem to make sense where you're at. It's it's, It's where you can't draw the kind of energy and power and wisdom and insight to do the kinds of things that God has called a person to do within their life. And that's why it's a struggle sometimes. You can still ride that bike, but it doesn't work the same way. It doesn't function well. It malfunctions. And so what God has designed in this idea is simply that this is pivotal. And secondly, I want you to see that it's absolutely pivotal. Absolutely pivotal. The writer to the, to the, uh, of, of this proverb here stacks a whole bunch of things on top of each other. There's a combination of elements. So let me share with you a couple of these things. One, he doubles the verb here, which means he would, it would sound like this. Keeping, keep. Keeping, keep your heart. Keeping, keep your soul. All right? And the idea behind this is to stress two things. One, the word keeping has this idea of continuous, continuously. So continuously do this. But secondly, it has the idea of intensifying the action. Keeping, keep. Which means I want you to really keep your soul. I want you to really keep your heart. Secondly is the, is the lexical meaning of this word shamar, which I told you about. The word to keep. Which means to give vigilant attention to. I, I love a cup of coffee in the morning, and I like a little dash of chocolate in my coffee, and I like a little bit of cream in the coffee during that time. I am no barista, but in my house, I have this Keurig. Anyone familiar with these? I'm sure you are. Yes. Okay. So um, I have got my concoction all set for this. Right? And I have an 11-ounce cup. And the Keurig does a 10-ounce or a 12-ounce. It doesn't give you the option for an 11-ounce, but I have an 11-ounce cup. Most of our cups are 11-ounce. They're just the cups we have, right? So when I make a cup of coffee, I have to make sure I siphon out, if I want the, the, the right concoction, siphon out one ounce of the coffee that drips through that thing, right? So I'm like a hawk watching this coffee. I'm like, when I brew it in the morning, I can't walk away. I can't go brush my teeth because this thing will overflow, because I want all 11 ounces. I don't want 10 ounces. I want 11 ounces, right? But not 12. So, man, I'm on this thing. That's the picture. That's the picture that the writer is trying to give us. Not only does it come from the idea, but it comes from the very meaning of the word itself. And then finally, there's the tense and the mood. This is, a, this is an imperative command in Hebrew. He doesn't give us any negotiating wiggle room with this. He's like, pay attention to this. Do this. 
And as he stacks these elements upon one another, he's actually trying to simply say, man, this is so, so, so important. Don't neglect this. And I have this sneaking suspicion that if we were to heed this verse, it would pay huge dividends in our lives. If we were to figure out what it would take to to give attention to our souls, to cultivate them, to nourish them, to develop them, that this would pay off in huge kinds of ways in our marriages, our parenting, our families, our work life, all those different areas of life, which is why the writer of Proverbs simply says, give attention to your soul because out of it flow all the issues of life, everything about you. So I have some thoughts about developing our soul. What are some of the thoughts that I have? I'm going to give you four things real quick. One, if you are interested and serious about doing this, then you're going to have to do some serious soul searching. You're going to have to search your soul a little bit. You're going to have to kind of find out what's the condition of my soul right now. Now, most of you would do this with your body. You would go into a doctor every so often or a dentist every so often. You're like, I'm going to get a checkup, right? And I want this expert to look at my life or look at my, my body and look at my, you know, uh, my physical uh, uh, existence and kind of track it for me. How am I doing here? Am I in good health? Am I not in good health? What's going on here? We do the same thing with our, uh, our dental, right? Go in and check. You got cavities, something looking kind of weird. We look at something here. We almost never do this with our souls. We almost never give them a checkup. And so one of the things I developed at our church, and I brought some here for you today so you can take them. They're back on the table here. Are, is it kind of a soul checkup? Kind of where am I at right now with my life? And you can use this at various times. Go Feel free to take a couple if you want to. Um, but just check and say, say, hey, here's where I'm at right now. Because I have a feeling that most of us never take the time to actually check up. How am I doing here? What are the kinds of activities that I'm engaged in? How often do I do this? How strong am I in this? And you're going to want to look at some of these things to begin to check up on your soul. But the second thing I would say is simply this. Make God the soul centerpiece. Make him the soul centerpiece. You know this hub? It's very possible for people to live without God at the center. And it's why their life gets so complicated and so crazy. Because everything seems to be disconnected from this center. The single most important design spec that God gave for human beings in the book of Genesis was that he would be the very center of a human being's life. That he would be the energizing force and the activating force of their soul. That he would be the one who drove them from the inside out and organized all the different aspects of life around them. It is the number one major design spec uh, that God put together for human beings. And the great issue of sin is simply this. We have taken and we have said, I'm going to replace God with something else. I'm going to have another well. I'm going to have another well to draw from. I'm going to have another source of my power. It's either going to be just myself, or it's going to be something else maybe outside of myself that I'm going to try to do. But it is the number one design spec that God gives and says, this is how I made you to work at the optimum level. Is for God to be at the very center of life. It's why Jesus came for us. To restore back the possibility of people being able to have God at the very center of their being. To have him be the activating and energizing force of their lives and of their world. Years ago, my wife and I bought a brand new Volkswagen Rabbit. It was way back in the, the, the mid-70s, okay? Like eons ago, right? And so uh, we had this, it was the first new car we'd ever bought. You know, 
Volkswagen Rabbit. And it was just at the time when two other factors were coming into play. One was something called unleaded gasoline. So if you can remember back before unleaded gasoline was the, you know, the, the major gasoline that used in a car, you had just regular gasoline. All right. It had lead in it. Right. But they made these new cars with unleaded. The other factor that happened at this particular time is that there was a gas crisis. And you can maybe remember lines going around the block, right? Well, we happen to live in the Bay Area, and our family lives in Sacramento, and so we would make these trips back and forth. But I remember getting to Sacramento one weekend, and we had a great time with family and everything. We got ready to go home. I went to fill up and get some, some unleaded gas. No unleaded gas could be found in Sacramento. They were like, everybody was out. And I'm like, dude, i got to be back to work at UPS on Sunday night. I have to, you know, i, I got to do this. So... Um, I bit the bullet and I put regular gas into my unleaded, uh, unleaded car, <laughs> right? And guess what? We made it. But that car coughed and sputtered and missed and blew uh, smoke all the way from Sacramento to Mountain View, all right? And you know what? I wrecked it. That car was never the same because of that because it wasn't designed for that fuel, It was designed for something else. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis real quick on this matter. And I always love this. I concur with him. He says, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel that our spirits were designed to burn, the food that our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. You can try. But if you're in the audience this morning and you've never, ever given your life over to Jesus Christ or never re-entered and engaged in that relationship with God, you are missing this vital element of your life that will make your life go. But I want to encourage you, man, think seriously about making God the centerpiece of your life this morning. So that's the second thing. First thing, do some serious soul searching. Secondly, make God the sole centerpiece of your life. The third thing I want to encourage you uh, about is crafting a personalized soul development plan. Okay, Craft a personalized soul development plan. What do I mean by this? My wife and I have developed certain habits in our marriage, certain things that allow us to connect together. There are certain activities. So one of the activities we have is on Fridays, it's my day off, and she takes that day off. And every job that she's ever had, because she works part-time, actually a couple of different jobs right now, we make sure Fridays is our day, because it's our time to connect. We have certain activities that we engage in that, that fuel our relationship, help keep it strong, and help it then grow and develop, all right? Every marriage has these kinds of things. Most relationships have these kinds of things. Even friendships have these kinds of activities that we have, right? And soul development plans are this uh, are, are these um, activities we engage in that facilitate our relationship with Jesus. They are the things that we do to facilitate relationship. They are not the relationship, but they do facilitate the relationship with Him. We sometimes call them training habits. Now, what God has established throughout the Bible are some um, standardized kinds of practices, right? Like. What are some of the practices you are aware of? And I'll take audience participation here. What are some of the practices you guys are aware of that that God has designed to facilitate relationship with him? What are some of the things we tell you to do? Pardon? Pray. So pray is one of them. There's the activity. Yeah, pray. That connects you with God. What else? Read the Bible. Read Scripture. Study Scripture. Yeah, stay together with Scripture. What else? What? Meditate on the Scriptures. A little bit of the same thing. What else? Worship. 
attend these kinds of gatherings where your heart can be affected in different kinds of ways with different kinds of elements. Right? What else? Serving. Right? Would you <laughs> I heard Gary say, serve where you should serve. <laughs> Giving, maybe. Um, these are all these standardized kinds of practices God has built into the system. However, there are variables in this in these practices. There are variables in these practices. Can I take you to a very um, well-known story in the Old Testament? You know the story, the story of David and Goliath. You remember the story. David is on his way to the, the Israelite camp. There's a war between the Philistines and the Israelites. They have reached this impasse. It's, it's got gridlock. No, no, no side can win. And so they decide that they're going to uh, decide this contest by the two champions who will come out and fight one another. The Philistines put forth Goliath. The Israelites put forth no one, because nobody wants to face Goliath. He's this incredibly talented warrior, and he's huge, right? So David comes to visit his brothers and to bring them provisions. And when he comes, he hears what's going on about this. And he's like, wait a minute. Why are you guys letting this uncircumcised Philistine blaspheme the living God? I, I don't understand this. Is nobody going to go out and fight this guy? And so David goes to the military leadership, to Saul and his generals and the people around him, and he says, hey, I'll take him on. And they're like, dude. You cannot do this. You're just a lad. You're just a boy. All right? I mean, this guy will kill you. He will mop up the floor with you. And David's like, hey, listen, I've taken on the bear. I've taken on the lion. I can do this. All right? Give me a chance. And it's very interesting. In in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, the very last half of that verse, Saul eventually, as as David lobbies the leadership of Saul, Saul eventually goes, okay. And listen to the words that Saul says as he says this. He says, all right. And Saul said to David, Go. May the Lord be with you, which I think is kind of his way of saying, hey, go for it, I guess. You know, not entirely encouraging. Listen to these words. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go and to walk around, for he had not tested these things out. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David took off all of the armor, and then he took a staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in a shepherd's pouch, and the sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And you remember the, the rest of the story. He wins this incredible victory over Goliath. But what catches my attention here is this. Armor would have been the standardized practice of the day. You don't go into battle without armor. David's like, I can't, I can't go to war like this. This is not me. This is not the way I fight. I'm going to have to go out there the way that I am used to going, the one that feels most comfortable to me. And what has begun to indicate to me is that very possibly, even though we have these standardized practices, that you and I have very unique ways that we practice these things. So, for instance, over the last 60 years, we have employed and followed and pursued in the Christian church standardized practices of spiritual growth and maturity for people. 40 days of purpose, 40 days of this, 50 days of that. We've, we've got these kind of standardized, cloned, assembly line kinds of ways in which we try to grow individuals, right? Assuming, I think falsely, that everybody's the same. That everyone has the same kind of spiritual motivations, the same kind of spiritual pathways. And one of the things that I'm beginning to discover more and more is that maybe, maybe Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 is actually more accurate than we think. Where Paul says, for we are God's workmanship, 
You know what the word workmanship is? It's the Greek term poema. We get our word poem from it. It's a masterpiece. We are God's masterpieces. We are not assembly lined out of some factory. We're not all the same. We don't all have the same kinds of motivations for the same kind of spiritual practices. Some of us here love studying the Bible. Others of us here, it's really difficult even for us to spend five minutes a day, ten minutes a day in the Bible. And I've discovered this also just really even among men. You know, one of the things that we we talk about in spiritual practices in the church is oftentimes, you know, most of the stuff that we do that's spiritual is stuff that you have to read. Guess what the number one problem men have in the spiritual in their spiritual practices is? They don't like reading, most of them. It is a struggle to read. They don't enjoy it. I can't tell you how many men I've talked to have said, man, it, we'll, we'll just tell them, hey, start reading the book of John. And I, I can watch men's faces sometimes. It just sinks and they just go, okay. <laughs> but I know they're not going to do it. Because they don't like reading. One of the reasons that I wrote my, my book, The Liquid Bible, to kind of give an overview of the Bible is just to give something very short, very pithy, very brief, because I believe men might read this and maybe get more um, motivated to get into the Bible. We are very unique individuals in God's eyes. We are his masterpieces, which means we're not assembly lined out at all. We're not given to one-size generic, one-size-fits-all spirituality. And that maybe what we need to begin doing is trying to say, what, how are we uniquely wired by God in these respects? So one of the things I would encourage you to do is to assess something. Assess your spiritual pathways. Anyone ever heard of this idea? Spiritual pathways are the unique ways. There are about nine of them indicated. They're not like spelled out in Scripture, but indicated throughout Scripture in which people connect with God the best. Some of us are naturalists. We love the natural world. It speaks to us about it. Some of us are uh, uh, given to beauty. Some of us are given to art, and that, that's an aesthetic kind. Some of us love activity. We want to be activists for the kingdom, and we want to serve God, and we feel close to God when we're doing something like that. And then others of us are intellectuals, and we love studying deep things in Scripture, and we just love pouring over the Bible. Uh, but other people don't. And... and and these kinds of activities, prayer, study, meditation, a giving, serving, all of these can be employed in varying degrees and in varying shades or in varying kinds of paces throughout our lives. And one of the great tricks of learning how you connect with God is just simply say, let me assess, how's God wired me? What do I love doing? Where do I feel most alive to God with my life? And then, man, take that and really major and strengthen that particular area of life. The other thing I would encourage you to do is to assess your time. That's the other thing. How much time do I have for this? How much time can I give to this? Because this is the one thing that will stop your spiritual life. If you give it no time. If you think that five minutes a day is going to feed your soul and organize your soul and order your soul for the demands of life, you might be very severely mistaken. If you think a shot in the arm once a week at church is going to make you spiritual and is going to grow your relationship with God, you're, you're sadly mistaken. It won't do it. It's a good thing to do. But that alone isn't going to do it. So begin this process of saying, how do I craft this very personalized development plan of developing my soul with God? And then finally, I would say this, continually strengthen your unique connection with Jesus. Continually strengthen your unique connection connection with Jesus. 
So I will say this. In every study ever done on spiritual development and growth, the single most important element is the Bible. The one that grows people the most and the one that encourages them the most and the one that allows them to develop and and expand their capacities is the reading and the study and the discussion of this book, the Bible. It's just the most powerful one. It doesn't mean that if you're not great at this, that, oh, you're, you're destined. I would just simply say, do what you can. Begin to grow. Take some baby steps. Begin to work through what that might be. Secondly, small groups are a great all-purpose way of doing this. They function in many different kinds of ways. And being involved in small groups, small group Bible studies or support groups or spiritual life groups or community groups or life groups or whatever different churches call these things becomes a very, very important part because you need the interaction of other people to fully flesh out and to enrich your understanding of the Bible and your understanding of God as well. We can't just be people with blinders on. Like, well, it's just how I see God. Because we're very limited in our perspective. And we don't have all the information that we always need in this particular area. And finally, I would encourage you, get alongside of someone who can be a spiritual mentor or a spiritual coach. I think this can be very, very helpful for people. Um, Get alongside someone who will spend some time with you, encourage you, move you, coach you through some things, help you kind of become a better version of yourself in all these kind of uh, things. And then the final insight I have for you this morning is simply this. Only you can develop your soul. No one else can do this for you. Your mom can't do it. Your dad can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. Gary can't do it. Matt can't do it. No one else can help you here. You are the keeper of your soul. In his book, Soul Keeping, John Artberg tells the story of this town, this village in the high uh, Swiss Alps. Beautiful little village up there, fed by this incredibly flowing stream. The water of the stream was crystal clear. It was, it was icy. Um, you could almost see through it. It was brilliant when it would flow down the mountain through the stream. And it would flow right through the center of town. And the ducks would come, and they would nest and, and swim on it. And the kids would come, and they would play in the waters. And um, the, the animals in the, in the community would come, and they would drink from this stream. And visitors would come from all over Switzerland to see this particular place and to visit and to build into the economy and nobody ever thought to think about well who keeps this stream how does a stream how how is a stream like this and of course the town elders knew that they had long ago hired this old gentleman this older man to make sure that he cleaned up the very source of the springs up there in the mountains it would sometimes get filled with debris Sometimes things would happen. And so this guy every day would go out. Nobody would ever see him, but he would go out. He would clear up the stream. He would kind of remove all the debris. Well, the town council eventually started thinking to themselves, why are we spending all this money on this old guy? We never see him anyhow. And so they fire him. We're not going to have him anymore. And eventually the stream starts to become polluted. It starts to smell. The ducks, they no longer come. The geese, they no longer come swimming the stream. The kids don't want to play around it. Nobody wants to be around the stream. Pretty soon visitors are not coming to the city or this little town to, to take advantage of the beauty of this place. It's becoming green. It's becoming algae. And eventually the town elders decide, let's rehire the old guy. And they do. And he goes up and he cleans out the debris. And soon the water is flowing uh, 
flowing uh, clean and clear again. It's crystal. The geese are returning. The people are returning. The children are playing on its banks. Old couples are strolling uh, along beside the stream. It becomes this life-giving thing again in the city. Here's the upshot of this. You are the keeper of your stream. No one can keep this for you. No one can work on your soul. You are the one who's the keeper of it. You decide what happens to it. And I want to encourage you in this. This is what God has designed us for. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Renovation of the Heart, writes and he says this about our lives. He says, Our soul is like a stream of water, which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other area of our lives. When that stream is as it should be, we are constantly refreshed and exuberant in everything that we do because our soul itself is then properly rooted in the vastness of God and his kingdom, including nature and everything else that is livened and directed, and, excuse me, and directed by that stream. Therefore, we are in harmony with God, we are in harmony with reality, we are in harmony with the rest of human nature, and we are in, at harmony with nature at large. And I ask this final question of us, what's the alternative If we don't do this, what's the alternative to our lives? What else will we do? The very nature of life tells us this, that everything left to itself will degenerate into disarray and disorder. It will. If you just leave something to itself, it it, it will just degenerate into disorder. Scientists call this entropy. It simply degenerates. If you don't believe me, check your yard. Don't do anything in your yard for a while. If you don't believe me, check your kids. Don't feed them, don't clothe them, don't bathe them, don't do anything for a while. If you don't believe me, check your garage. All right? It's just the natural tendency of things toward disorder. So are our souls. If left to themselves, they will simply become disordered. But when they are infused by the very life of Jesus who came for us to live inside of us, to give us new life again, as we sang about this morning in most of the songs that I heard us sing, man, that's what the soul is all about. And it is this place where infused by the life of Jesus, it comes alive to God and it begins to organize every other facet of life, giving it its proper uh, priority and dimension, all those things that happen out of it. And I'm convinced of this, that nobody sets out in life to be a failure. No one sets out in life to get a divorce. Nobody sets out in life to to be sick. Nobody sets out in life to have broken relationships. Nobody sets out in life to to be so busy in their business that their kids never know them and could care less about them when they grow older. Nobody sets out in life to have these kinds of things happen. And nobody, nobody sets out in life to go to hell. It just happens. It just happens unless you are willing to make the greatest decision of life and to put God at the center of life and then to develop that area of your life, this thing called the soul. And when you do that, then you begin to experience what Jesus called the abundant, full-flowing life that God designed you for. Don't let it happen to you. Pay attention and give attention to your soul because out of it flow all the issues of life. Can I pray for us this morning? Lord, thank you for these people. 
I delight to be with them because I watch their hearts. I watch as they sing. I watch as they uh, carry on uh, community with one another as they intersect with each other's lives and interact with one another. And Lord, I would simply ask for them today, would you take whatever words might have been appropriate? And Lord, I don't know what it might have been that spoke to anyone's life in particular. But Lord, I would pray especially for those who may be sitting in this audience and may have never, ever given their life to you. And Lord, I pray that they will make you the very center, that they will consider seriously, Jesus, your words. What would it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And Lord, for the rest of us, would you help us to understand how we can give greater attention to this area of our lives, not only through the church, but at home, through our Bible studies, through other things that we do. Lord, would you continue to move us and motivate us and bring us to this place that you want us to be, that we may be people who honor you and glorify you with our lives and in the world itself. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen.